Hello, I'm Frida Morrison, and this is Scots Radio. On behalf of the team, welcome to this programme. And as some folk at this time of the year may be planning to wander off to other countries, explore other cultures, we invite you to join us on journeys across the globe with travel writer Alistair Scott and memorable journeys with Dave Mitchell. We're on the move this episode. And back home, we hear about inspiring plans and projects for the Doric board member Gordon Hay. Now, this is a track for a lovely new album by the group Ascent, featuring Ennis White on guitar, Graham McKenzie on fiddle, and David Shedden on pipes. A wee preview for their new album, Where From Here. This is Nine Dawn. From the group Ascent for their new album, Where From Here. It's a lovely new album. Now, have you noticed the left is changing 
and we met he the first signs of spring. Met he. I'll just leave that with you. So let me introduce the team. In our Edinburgh studio, the wizard was soon and certain. Come in, Richard <laughs> Werner. How we doing? How we doing, folks? You all right, Frida? What's happening? I, I, I like to hear a big build up there because he deserves it. Well, it's been busy. Uh, as usual, Richie, right. Celtic Connections, appearances in Glasgow. Uh, but you've been in Glasgow appearing in, I was. in Celtic Connections as well. I was indeed. Aye. On the on the, on the the wee stage, the big stage, whatever you want to say, I was at the Strathclyde Suite performing as part of the, the Hamish Henderson Ballad of the Banffies evening, which was absolutely fantastic and lovely to be back oh. at the festival. Oh, I wish I'd made it to that one. It sounded great. Now, um, we weren't going to mention the topic of mooses. Well, we're not going to mention it, but there have been there have been there have been uh, developments. Tell us about your developments, Richie. Well, my development, hmm. Apart from the the who's smelling like an after eight factory with all the peppermint oil I've put down, which normally normally they didn't like. Uh, what's Aye. happened is I've had a, a wee moose. I think has had a wee chow on one of my electrical cables. And I thought for a minute there I wouldn't even have any power of the day to run the studio <laughs> and do the show. Uh, however, it's it's been isolated to just my plugs up the stair. Still, how annoying. And I think I've got a wee fried mousse somewhere. So. <laughs> oh, no. Well, I'm in the middle of, I think I've just put out my tenth moussey. Oh, I mean, I'm doing the humane traps, you know. But Abdi, I'm speaking to has got the problem, you know, especially folk right. in the countryside. But you're you're in the city and even the countryside. But I'm got, I've got little wee tiny... Field mice, field that is mice. beautiful. Uh, the, the city slickers down here. Oh, no, uh, I don't know. <laughs> so the wee field mice, humane, humane traps, and Dave Mitchell says, it's the same in coming back in again. <laughs> That's what's happening. Right, on we go. And also in Edinburgh, or near Boots, a past curator of Edinburgh Botanic Gardens and new deputy chair of the National Trust for Scotland, come in, Mr. Davy Mitchell. Hello. <clears throat> Morning, Frida. Apart from mice, fit like the day. Oh, I'm fine looking at the bonnet. We're just waiting for a storm to hit us up oh. in the north as well, you know. Another storm. If you didn't hate storms, you wouldn't appreciate the sun. Life's a true. balance. Dave, a wee minute ago, I made reference to the changing on the left, and we were speaking earlier on about the harbingers of spring. And you mentioned a poem about spring written by Lady John Scott. Tell us, Mayor. Aye, I did. I mentioned a fine wee piece called The Coming of the Spring. It was written by Alicia Ann Spottiswood, who became Lady Ann Scott after she got married. And she was born in 1810 and died in 1900. And by all accounts, she was a kind of delightful, sensitive, inspiring, but kind of shy character. And she belonged to one of the oldest and most respected families in the Scottish borders, the Spottiswoods of Lammermuir. But for childhood, Alicia had a deep love of the countryside, and she had an ability to mix with folks, both rich and poor, across her community. She was a great walker. She was a fine horsewoman. And she had great observational skills about nature and people in particular, and that's reflected in her poems. But she was musical, you can. She played the harp, and mm -hmm. she had a fine singing voice, and she could read and write and speak English, French and Italian. She was well-read. And she, she had a deep interest in botany and geology and archaeology. She, she, I'd like to have met her. Mm -hmm. And she was a proficient songwriter, too, you know, a collector of folklore and songs. And it was her that put William Douglas's poem to music, Annie Laurie, and made that song as famous, oh, as, right. it is, oh, right. as, famous as it is mm -hmm. today. Now, I first came across her in a wee book that I bought a number of years ago, that was published mm -hmm. in 1904, after she died. It was called Songs and Verses. 
and it, it, it's full of real treasures about landscape and the history of the borders and it's got a lot of stuff in it day to day with the nation's history and Jacobites I'll just give you the first two verses of the coming of the spring mm-hmm. there's no amure in mine land but's full of sang the day with the whap and the golden plover and the linty upon the brae the birk and the glen is springing the rowan tree in the shaw and every burn is running wild with the melting of the snow. The wee white clouds in the blue lift are hurrying light and free, their shadows fleeing on the hills where I too fain would be. The wind through the west is blowing, and way it seems to bear the scent of the time and the going through ah the collar air. And as we enter February, with the snowdrops kicking out in our hearts, again, getting warmer at the sight of them, I don't care about you, but her efforts put a spring in my step and joy in my heart. Oh, as she yes. says in the last line of the poem, and there's naught but joy in my inland at the coming of the spring. Oh, David Mitchell, as I was a national treasure. Fascinating to hear this. And her dates, you said, would be 1810 to 1900. And that, Burns died in 1796, so she must have been aware of his writing, eh? Oh, she'd be aware of Burns' writing and she'd be aware of the works of James Hogg and Walter Scott. Mm-hmm. You know, their, their lives all overlapped and you know, she'd also be aware, I think, of Wilson Steele's at the borders. You know, and that's something we've no spoke about before. But, you know, I think she really deserves to be an awful lot more better known than, you know, than she is. Um, the, the book about her life, you know, the book of poems that I had, there's, there's the first sort of 30, 40 pages is actually tells you about her life. She sounds like quite a fascinating person. Fascinating character. And there's parallels, I think, between her life and the life of Violet Jacob. That's um, what I was just thinking. You we know, need to speak more about Oh, we can dig about her again. Right, now, later on, you're going to be telling us about your journeys across the world, your adventures. And they are amazing, David Mitchell. Amazing adventures. That's hard to come. Right, let me introduce a special guest that joins me here in the Northeast. A special welcome the travel writer and photographer, Alistair Scott. Alistair, you've got some amazing stories to tell in this wheel that includes talking a team of huskies across Alaska. Are you there, Alistair? I'm here, yes. Yes, uh, well, it's, it's been a privilege to be able to see so much of the world. But um, yeah, I'm very happy to talk about some of those adventures. Now, your recent journey finished at Khartoum in Sudan. Now, far did it start for you? It started uh, at North Cape in northern Norway. Um, the, the idea, I'm, I, what I'm wanting to do is to try and cycle from northern Norway down to Cape Town. And I would have liked to have done it in one journey, but um, I've got responsibilities and things. So I'm breaking it up and doing a few legs each year. And as you say, it's been a, a very broken journey. COVID didn't help. I lost two years with that. So it's been going about five years with just a month or two here and there. But um, I've now reached Khartoum. In Sudan. Wow. Oh, and then you're on to your second leg that we'll hear about in a minute. Alistair, most of us are dreaming over holidays in the sun at this stage, and you're an inspiration, but we'll, we'll, we'll hear more about your journeys. Pause for another bit of music. The Enema, my favourite singers and bands. Just for a wee journey during the years. This is Sandy Denny and the Strogs. We sail away to the sea. Sometime I'll be on my way 
Many memories in that. Now, sometimes it's just a case of you're working alongside somebody, maybe in your team, your social circle, or your club, and you just tuck their amazing talents for granted. Now, I've had the pleasure of being chair of the Northeast Doric Board, working alongside 12 Gweed folk in through for the past few years, are working to highlight and celebrate the culture of the Northeast. An integral part of that team is our treasurer, Gordon Hay. And as we were hearing about the board's work and recent New Year awards, I thought it was time we actually celebrated the talents and contribution of the aforementioned Gordon N. Hay. And you'll hear why in a minute. And just for starters, in 2012, he published his version of the New Testament in Doric. And Fang were on the subject. He's translated Handel's Messiah into Doric, excerpts of which were performed in 2018 in St. Macher's Cathedral in Aberdeen under the direction of Wheelkent musician and conductor Paul Miller. And last year, his book, O Doric Nursery Rhymes, won the Bairns Book of the Year at the Scots Language Awards in Dundee. Fit mere can I say? Well, there is mere. So I thought it was time to hear news of Gordon Hay and hear Mayor about Fitty's planning this year. But we start with the Doric Board's New Year Awards. So, background and to quote. The Doric Board was created in the Northeast to energise public appreciation of the region's exceptional heritage. This is the Board's fourth annual set of awards, 
which are supported by the Scottish Government to develop and support a sustainable, dynamic future for Doric as a vibrant branch of the Scots language. So, Gordon, tell us, Mayor, what are the New Year Awards? The New Year Awards for the Doric Board are basically grants that we give to folk far have got a project that falls within our aims. That's to promote Doric or the culture of the Northeast. Right. That's established. So, what's been going out this year? We have 15 grants going out this year. For all kind of places, for Aberlour to Edinburgh. But there are projects that are dealing with the culture of the Northeast. We've got Mike Gibb, an Aberdeen writer. He's been funded for a novel that he's going to be writing set against the Piper Alpha background. We have uh, Jodie Bewes and Jackie Ross. They're going to be doing an illustrated book on the Scottish wildcat. And I think that's going to appear to a big series of books on beasties of the north and the northeast. We've got our own Doric board maker, Sheena Blackhall. She's going to be doing a project called Doric Rhyme Time for Bairns. Lovely. And she's going to get run libraries, Gian Bairns, a taster in Doric. Northeast Arts Touring are going to be doing creative workshops. We are a well kent Doric promoter, Joe Gilbert, for recovering addicts. Hmm. Um, and just a, a huge amount of different kinds of projects that are going to promote the culture of the Northeast. But you've been commissioned as well, this man, uh, to, to write text in Doric for the National Jazz Orchestra, haven't you? Well, this just came out of the blue. I came home in Echt and there was an email saying that the Scottish National Jazz Orchestra were going to be performing Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf in Doric. They have created a jazz version of Peter and the Wolf, which of course is a story that is both played musically, we are a narrator that tells what's going on. It's a story about a wee loony and his, his grandfather and a wolf and a birdie and a juke. And they get into the most awful snarls. They had asked, the Scottish National Jazz Orchestra had asked Liz Lockheed <laughs> to translate the English text into Scots. And they thought that they would like to perform it in Aberdeen, but in Doric. So I was sought to translate Liz's oh. version for Scots to Doric. Good for them and good for you, Gordon. And that really showed me the huge difference that there is between the Scots of the south of Scotland and the Scots of the northeast here. Our words, we had so many different words for things that she had used and our Doric words were completely different. How can folk get more information about the awards? For the Doric Board website. Um, we've got a press release going out that were just handed out recently. Mm -hmm. So if a press release going out, there'll be bitties about it in the paper, but you'll be able to learn about them on our website. And if you want to apply for a, an award next year, then look out about October time. Put in your application. Mm -hmm. And if you're up to much, you'll maybe get some silver face. You'll maybe get some some. some. Support for us. I right, Doric Board website, www.doricboard.com, and you'll find more information about this as well on the Scots Radio website, www.scotsradio.com. No. So, on to your end projects, Gordon, of, and there are many, I can tell you. Last year, as I said, your book, 
or nursery, Doric nursery rhymes, won the Bairns Book of the Year at the Scots Language Awards in Dundee. Now, for the Messiah, to the New Testament, to Bairns nursery rhymes, fit wine nursery rhymes. Well, we were in the middle of lockdown, and I'd been in Peter Heed doing my food shopping, and I was driving home, and on Radio Scotland, and we're allowed to mention a different channel. You can do that if you like, right? There was an article about a translation of Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tales into Scots. And I thought, fairy tales, nursery rhymes? And I couldn't think of only translations in Scots, so the, the wheel can't nursery rhymes. There's a lot of Scottish nursery rhymes, but we didn't ken them, other than Wee Willie Winky. Mm-hmm. I've a whole book of them, but none of them have I ever heard in, in, in the school or, or, or being recited. So I did a wee bit of research and I couldn't have found anything about the Wilkent English nursery rhymes in Scots. So I sat doing that weekend and I translated 36 of them into Doric, <laughs> sent them to my granddaughter. You can have a hug back, do you? <laughs> sent them to my granddaughter. Word and to yourself, Frida. Okay. Word come back. Oh, well, this was maybe worth doing something we. And you, Frida, uh, recommended an illustrator, uh, Rosie Cunningham, based in Glasgow. Superb job she I'm did. Enough a good oh. call, I'm <laughs> And uh, although it took me a, a, a forty-eight hours to do the translation, the, the illustrations took a wee bit longer. But by the end of the year, that was twenty twenty-one, we had them finished and published. Doric Nursery Rhymes for Loons and Quines. Right. You won, as I said, the, the, the Doric, the, the Scots, Bairns Book of the Year. Give some examples. Give three just new. Well, here's Mary, Mary, quite contrary. Mary, Mary, contermashes. Your garden is recht bra, with siller balls and bucky shawls, and bonny quines in a raw. And fit about hush a by baby. Hishty wishty babbity, as hich as a clood. Fun the wind blaws, a cradle will shout. Fun the bow bracks, a cradle will faw. Tumble doon cradle, babbity, and ah. Okay, folk are listening to this. Now you're saying, I could get that book for my bairns or just for myself. How do they find the book? They can find it on eBay, on Amazon. It's in a fair few local shops running about, or direct for me at gordonmhay at outlook.com. Right. Another three, just before we get off the subject. One there. Well, this is is my favourite, Ian, and I I have a friend at Crimmond, a retired doctor, called Bob Murray, and I was thinking of him when I was thinking about the doctor going to Gloucester, Dr Foster. So we've got... Dr. Murray, get to Turra, in a smear of wheat. He stepped in a puddle right up to his middle and got daubs all over his feet. Oh, I like it, oh, I like it, oh, I like it. Okay, so nursery rhymes, um, apart from your projects, of course, you're a former chair of the Charles Murray Memorial Fund, President of the Buchan Field Club and honorary president of the Buchan Heritage Society, and as I mentioned, the esteemed treasurer of the Doric Board. You're an organist, piano player, singer, uh, in several choirs. You just didn't hang about, Gordon, as I said. And uh, you wouldn't be looking for something to tuck you to the hoose, as they say up here. So, 
And then, of course, there's a four-acre garden you looked after. Oh, that, that's my pride and joy. I have a four-acre garden, and I'm virtually self-sufficient in vegetables okay. for six to seven months of the year. Yes, I'm good. Right. Plans for this year, Gordon? What are they? Well, the big plan for this year is to publish my translation of the Old Testament in Doric. It's been finished for some time, but I'm hearing enough a job getting the pages to bide in the right order. <laughs> Hopefully within the next fortnight it's going to be ready and once it's published by the summer, that'll be the first time that the Hale Bible has ever been translated into Scots. The Old Testament, the Old and, Testament the Testament. and the New Testament. Can you give us a, a bit of well, of course, the Old Testament tells us that why we speak Doric and that why some folks speak English and some folks speak Greek and some folks speak French. Mm -hmm. And it's in the book of Genesis, chapter 11. Here's verses 1 to 9. Now, at daytime, the hail world all spoke the same tongue and the same words. As folk wandered about to the east, they come on a bit of flat ground about Shiner and settled there. They said to in another, Come on and make a puckle bricks and fire them hard. Say so they had bricks for big and wee, and tar to had them together. Sign they said, Fat sore edder, we'll big ourselves a grand tune we a muckle tour with the top out rocks and up to heaven, and we'll make a name for ourselves for fear we'll be scattered out of the world. Sign the Lord come down to see the tune, and the tour they folkies had bigot. And he said, Here they are, a folk with a tongue, and this is just a start out. Seeing they'll be able to do anything they went. Come on, we'll young down and make a mixter, maxter of their words, and the winner came for in another saying. So the Lord scattered them awa for there over the hail whirl, and they stopped big in a tune. That's why it's called Babel. Because the Lord made a bubble of the speck of all the world. For there the Lord scattered the folk over the hail world. Gordon Hay. This is Ross Lensley and Ali Hutton from her album Symbiosis.
That was a track for an album called Symbiosis for Ross Ainsley and Ali Hutton. And before that, I had the pleasure of speaking to the legendary Gordon M. Hay about his work with Northeast Culture and Heritage, the Doric Board Translations and Music. And Gordon's nursery rhyme book, Doric Nursery Rhymes for Loons and Quines, is just a treasure like Gordon Hay. No, let me take you on a journey. Near your usual kind of journey. Near your usual type bit. In that mess, walking up your instinctive wanderings. As winter winds furrow round the roots of our very existence here, some of us will be planning holidays into the sun and they with our foreign beaches and leafy groves. Our guest this episode is planning a journey as well, but it's near a holiday he's planning. Alistair Scott has travelled throughout the world, mostly on bicycle, but at times on camels, on foot, and on a sledge pulled with huskies across Alaska. And what he enjoys is travelling and exploring and writing about his adventures. Alistair's written nine books in print and in on online. Born and brought up in Murrayshire, Alistair is as keen to explore his native Scotland as he is the corners of the world. Alistair, welcome again to the programme. Are you there again? Thank you, Frida. Yes, I am. Oh, well, it's, it's just been an absolute pleasure hearing you. And in a minute, we'll hear about your adventures. But your stories in your travel books are full of adventures and unique observations, and that tucks the reader into the corners of the countries. Now, your first book, Scott Free, was described by a reviewer as being full of enthusiasm and a delight. Rich in humour and signs of an oncoming wisdom. That's a good start for your first book, <laughs> Oncoming Wisdom. Tell us if it's the book about Alistair. I don't know. I don't know if the wisdom ever actually arrived. <laughs> but um, the, yeah, the first book was. Um, I don't. Well, I, I don't know when this this desire to travel really started. But when I was young, I remember looking at a great aunt's globe, and you know, being fascinated by it and wondering what the countries were like. And then as I grew a bit older and discovered what the countries were like, I thought, I really want to go there. And so I uh, planned a journey that by the time I sort of linked up all the countries that I wanted to go to, I thought was going to take between three and five years. And it did. It took five years. So uh, Scott Free was the first of the trilogy that I wrote about that journey, which was um, most of it was in a kilt. I, I wanted to try to go to some of the world's lesser known places and do everything in the wrong season and simply to try and get a different perspective on what the countries were like. So I set off north at the beginning of winter. And yeah, it just lasted five years, a hitchhiking with a kilt. But then the kilt went away for uh, two years. I had such a hostile reception in uh, Latin America. Um, I had stones and rotten fruit uh, thrown at oh, me, so no. I thought, to hell with this. And I sent the kilt back home, but then I had it returned to me. So I, it brought me my richest and my worst experiences, let's put it that way. Yeah. Okay, Tracks Across Alaska. Uh, that was your, your fourth book. Driving a team of huskies. It... it occurred to me, how do you order a team of huskies? Did you, did you order them before you went to Alaska? <laughs> or did you say, right, I'm in Alaska. Can somebody sell me a team of huskies? No, you don't just uh, put a shopping list at Tesco's for a, a team of huskies. Um, <laughs> I, I knew nothing about sled dogs when I went to Alaska. I just had the image of uh, wanting to do the journey. And so I, I knew people that had a wee cabin in the middle of Alaska. 
they lent me that cabin for the winter. So I got there and I, I found there were about um, 200 sled dogs in this village of 80 people and very keen mushers, as they call them there. And people lent me dogs when they, when they heard that what I wanted to do, they lent me their dogs. But of course, they lent me all the problem dogs. Uh, they, they lent me the dogs that no one wanted. And, uh, but then they showed me how to sort of correct their behavior, which is terribly time consuming. And some dogs didn't work out and some did. But the big problem is getting a lead dog. Not every dog will be a leader. And to, to find a dog that will actually respond to commands and also have the uh, strength of character to turn the whole team, that, that's the big thing. And I eventually found this dog that uh, a well-known musher had used, but um, she was getting old, so he was using her to train puppies, and she got sick of all these boisterous long puppies, so she gave up on him and just sat down. And he said, I think she'd be good for your journey. And she was the most wonderful dog. I still think about her almost every every day, all these years later. But that's what made it possible. Oh, Alistair. Can, can you read a bit from that book? I'm going to read a sort of little humorous piece, but the book varies from lots of different uh, aspects of, of there's mm-hmm. a lot of serious stuff in the book as well it's not just the humor i went on the frozen yukon river i use that as as my route for um, half the journey and i reached a place called caltag which is where the trail broke off and went overland before then reaching the bering sea which was frozen and, and the rest of my journey was on the bering sea but this was what happened at a place called caltag the pupils of caltag's grade five showed me their zoo They had a tarantula and a chameleon in separate enclosures. The tarantula's poison glands had been removed and it ate flies. Life was hard for a tarantula in Alaska, they explained, because of the seasonal scarcity of flies. Each winter, the tarantula struggled through a famine. But things were obviously worse for a chameleon in Alaska. It was dead. I didn't like to ask why they kept the shriveled remains, but assumed that, being a rarity in Caltag, bits and pieces of a chameleon were better than no chameleon. Some you win, some you lose, said a cheery soul, and in the grim contest for grade five's flies, the chameleon had lost. I know that Dave Dave Mitchell's sitting waiting to come in on this. Dave, feel free to take part because your your travels have thrown up so many adventures as well. Your your kindred spirits, so to speak. Just just listen to Alistair talking about chameleons. (laughs) I I remember an encounter in Madagascar with Parsons Chameleon, which is a big fella. It's about 15 inches long with its tail curled up. And it, it's got this, it's eyes, these these sort of cone-like eyes that move round about in the most incredible angles. And it, it changes colour in relation to the vegetation round about it. But the best thing of all is its tongue. It opens its mouth and out it goes about 15 <laughs> inches long, this great long tongue with a big sticker on the end of it. It zaps onto a flea and pulls it back in and then it turns around and looks at you and it rolls its eye around as much as to say, mm-hmm, you do that. You think you've evolved, pal. No chance. <laughs> I'm quite glad the one I encountered was dead then. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get, in, in Madagascar, you get, you get other species of chameleon that are only about, you know, two and a half inches long maybe even smaller <laughs> fantastic you know I love these so. stories <laughs> hey, right your next book is Native Stranger Alistair now let me read 
what writer James Robertson had to say about this book in his review in Scotland on Sunday. Let, let me just read it. And uh, he said, Alistair Scott is witty, informative, warm, self-effacing and intelligent. Sometimes his writing is as funny, no mean praise this, as P.G. Woodhouse for sheer entertainment and an enthusiasm that makes you want to get out of your chair and go. Native stranger scores highly. James Robertson. That's an amazing, amazing tribute, Alistair. Tell me about Native Stranger. Well, Native Stranger was inspired by the idea that having travelled for about 15 years around different countries in the world, I came back home and felt that I, did, I, I knew more maybe about Nicaragua's politics than I knew about Scotland. So I decided to make a journey to try and look at Scotland as a stranger might see it. And in many ways, I did feel a stranger, even though it was my native land. So I called it Native Stranger. But I was also out to explore all the myths and the truth behind a lot of historical figures and customs and traditions. So I cycled around Scotland, just talking to people over walls and fences. I also wrote to the WRI, uh, Women's Rural Institute, uh, and I said, can you give me a list of characters in your area? And in this way, I, I built up a lot of contacts of really wonderfully weird and eccentric people, fascinating people. So the book was a mixture of my own explorations and some of the stories that I, I heard. And I'll read you a wee extract. This is called A Missed Opportunity. In a council house in Les Mahago, we discuss missed opportunities. Robert McLaren remembered one of his. For over 30 years, it had plagued him. I was just a lad at the time, a bar waiter at some grand hotel in Dunoon. Lady Montague Stewart took a private suite for two weeks every year. She was an old wifey by then. One afternoon the bell rang and I was summoned to her suite. And there was Lady Montague Stewart sitting with two poodles on her lap. She ignored me and spoke to the poodles. Ask the kind young man if he'll get you some water, says she. And that was our, she said. So I went off and got it, and ah, I regret it to this day. I just wish I'd had the courage to bend doon to they poodles and say, ask the old bag if there's anything else she wants. <laughs> so that was just one of the many encounters I had. Then the, the next book, uh, I'm going to your, your sailing activities, is Salt and Emerald. Now, that was quite an adventure, sailing round Ireland. More about that, Elsa. Yes, well, I, I I took to sailing quite late in life, and um, I sort of got a tiny wee one of these little like surfboards with a sail on that you capsize all the time, and then I borrowed a sort of slightly bigger boat, and then I, I bought a second-hand one, but I'd still only actually set the anchor and retrieved it once successfully before setting off on a solo journey around Ireland. So it was a bit of a learning-as-you-went experience. And actually, Ireland's quite challenging with sandbanks on one side and the open Atlantic on the other. So that, that, that was how the journey got going. So it's quite a challenge. But this is not really a book about the sailing. It's more about Ireland and the Irish, and I just used the boat as a means of transport and then I spent quite a lot of time on the land interviewing people and and seeing things so that's the, that's the basis of the book. Dave did you do you you did a fair amount of sailing as well maybe not for, uh, yourself but you, you uh, were on, on boats a lot. Yeah well, I spent probably the better part of a year and a half of my life at sea in various ways you know but just listening to Alistair talking about Ireland one of the very first things I did was a circumnavigation of Ireland but, uh, you know, I was on a larger vessel and I was lecturing 
you know, going onshore and off and, 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 and sailing between different ports and, you know, acting as a guide and, you know, seeing the land as well as the sea. And I, I, I totally agree with Alistair. It's, you know, Ireland's an incredibly fascinating country. My first visit there, Catherine and I drove around Ireland. We followed the coast for two weeks, visiting gardens and photographing gardens. That wasn't long after we got married. And it was just, you know, I think, meeting the people and meeting the culture. And I, I've always been impressed with Ireland as to how deeply embedded in daily life, you know, art, poetry, literature, yeah. music. Um, if I had my life to live again, I think, you know, I would probably live it in Ireland. Yeah. I, wow. One of the things that struck me about sailing around Scotland is the absolute abundance, the real plentifulness of sea life and wildlife. And I expected Ireland would be even better or the same. And I found really it, it was there was a dearth. I, I, I think that, that, that's a very shrewd observation. I mean, I've sailed a lot through the Western Isles and round the coast of Scotland and the Orkneys and Shetland. Wildlife is, seems to be much more abundant here um, mm. than it is on the west coast of Ireland or on the on the east coast. And I, I think there's there's lots of reasons behind that. Most of them are to do with the Gulf Stream ecology, weather, yeah. climate. Yeah. You know, there's the, the condition of the seas, et cetera, et cetera. But for what Ireland loses in that direction, it makes yes. up with the soul. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. A lovely way to put that. Right, the last book I'm going to mention of yours, also is Eccentric Wealth, about the Bullers of Rum. Tell us about the Bullers of Rum. Well, this is uh, an extraordinary place. I'm always surprised how many people have been to Rum one of the small isles, and it's majestic. It's a beautiful, beautiful island. And in the 1880s, it, well, it's always had, or had a long history of having English landowners who just used it as a shooting ground. And then in the 1880s, the Bula family bought it, and they made their fortune in Accrington in Lancashire, making textile machinery and they became extremely rich and he built this sandstone which was the wrong material to use castle Kinloch Castle on the Isle of Rum and I went there from school a school expedition we went there and we camped on the island and we were taken into this castle and I've never forgotten coming out of the sort of the rum bogs and the rain and the swollen rivers soaking and wet and going into this castle where there were these amazing bars where uh, jets of water could be shot at you from all sorts of directions. And there were lion skins and tiger skins and Steinway grand pianos. And this opulence in this you know, wilderness, it was just the most extraordinary experience. Over the years, the myths seemed to sort of get built upon. And I decided to try and sort them all out and work out what was true and what was, was not. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the reality was really just as bizarre as the myths and the rumours. So this is the book about the Buller family and about um, that sort of uh, Edwardian high living society, which just came to the end with the First World War. Right, now still to come, your recent journey, which we spoke about right at the beginning. So when do you plan to start your next part? Roughly in May, June, I'm hoping now to fly to Nairobi and then travel south. My journey's been interrupted. I mean, the sad fact of the world is that it's, you know, politics has screwed up so many countries and caused mm -hmm. such hideous wars and suffering. I couldn't go through Syria. I'm not prepared to actually go through countries where... The government says if you're if you get into trouble, you're totally on your own. We're not helping mm. you. So, and also, there's an extremely high risk of being abducted uh, or killed in Syria at the moment. 
South Sudan, sadly, is the same. And uh, Ethiopia, I think its borders are still closed, but it might be opening up. But anyway, there's too many problems there. So I'm going to start again in Nairobi. And I'm missing out a wee chunk of Africa there and then heading south to Cape Town. And you've got to keep in contact with us. But thanks you for joining us. And for more information about your travels and your books, Alistair, how do folk find out? What's your website address? Uh, well, I've got <laughs> I've got a sort of almost obsolete website. I haven't um, done anything with it for about eight years, but it does give the basic information. So it's alistair-scott.com is a website. And as I say, I don't maintain it, but the information is frozen it's there. there yeah. <laughs> well, you know, this, it's just an absolute pleasure having you here in your traveller's tales. And as I said, we're going to keep in contact with you. Lovely. Right, here's more music. This is a track the Eno, my, my favourite albums, Northern Sky by Pete Coots. This is Cast in the Pete. <laughs> After the thaw, you're up at the crack Bros in my belly, bullin' stump on my back And doing through the den and then o'er the high street And on to back hell to get cast in the feet Well I'm courtin' a lass, but I'm empty in pocket Pied by the chain, so it's best I get yocket But there's time for a laugh with the folks that I meet then again on my way to get cast in the feet That's spitting your hands and then on with the job Find sharp and spot will take care of the sod Whether stickers for the whiskey cutting stumpers or the priest You'll be up to your cooeats and it's cast in the feet Get round that barra, sixteen stumpers at a time There's seven to the ripple, sixty-six yards to the chine And a supple calteef in your first field's the need Cos the graft is guide you when you're casting the feet Be lows and I'm foolin' and the rinch be the rain Jump a lift and the bogey so I'm quick to get game And I'll walk through the tune with my lassie so sweet and the morn I'll be up again casting And the morn I'll be up again casting And the morn I'll be up again casting the feet And you know that I'll always be casting the feet Hmm, I love that song. Northern Sky casting the peat for Pete Coots. Now, Dave Mitchell has travelled all over the globe. Like myself, he likes to find out about places, the folk, their culture and their environment. But before we get into that wee bit, what is it about the Scots psyche that marks us need to travel and explore? Is it because we just didn't like being tethered, what do you think? That's an interesting point, Frida. I'm not sure it's just about being frustrated at being tethered, whether that's to a place, a job, or your family that makes us want to wonder, have that desire to get out of the situation. 
I think it's actually much more about as individuals, we need to be free. We need to be different. To be in charge of our own space, our own destiny as far as possible, so that we can grow and better ourselves and the lives of our families. You know, if you think about it, over the centuries, that latter point is often tied to challenging historical events that arose in the history of the nation, be they political, social or economic, especially between the 1600s and the 1900s. But you have to balance those challenges too with the fact that Scotland played a very important role in the Enlightenment and we had very high standards of education right across all layers of society. You know, in the 1700s, 1800s, a lot of young men could read and write at an early age much better than other bairns were in other parts of the country in these islands. They could also work with numbers. The challenges of the clearances and eviction, I think, you know, are huge. That, that was a massive driver, forced the need to go, to, mm-hmm. made to, to depart these shores. But I also think that strong educational foundation and our adventurous spirit made us determined, you know, to get out in the world and find a better way of life and make a difference and make a difference not only to our own lives but to the lives of others. The main aim of going was to find happiness and security and, if possible, greater wealth for our families. And, you know, all you needed to do that was was courage. So why stay at home and put up with what you've got if you can get something better elsewhere and you've got the education to allow you to do it? Right, no. Again, you've travelled a lot, so far did you gain? Well, I've been all around the world. I mean, I my early years, and the first 25 years of my life, you know, in fact, until I was 31, you know, I explored Britain and I wanted to understand our own country in great depth, its history, its geography, its culture and its communities. And that grounding was fundamental to my sort of foundation. It resulted in me feeling that travel without purpose and learning at its core is, is not worth doing. There's no use just travelling if you're just going to relax and have fun. That wasn't enough for me. And even, you know, when I was, Kate, when my wife and I first got married, all our holidays were structured around, you know, visiting places like Ireland or, you know, visiting gardens in England or visiting gardens in Scotland and photographing them and what have you. But I went to work in a Royal Botanic Garden one day, I can't even mind when, it was must have been about in November 1991, and I'd be 32 at that time. And I was summoned down to the director's office and he says, aye, you're going off to Brunei. I said, what? He says, yeah, we're going to send you on the Royal Geographical Society um, Brunei Rainforest Expedition (laughs) to a field station in the middle of Temburong province. And I actually went there with a really good friend of mine who's now sadly passed, Dr George Argent. And I I went to Temburong province and I carried out a research project for 12 weeks. And after that, I did such a good job that I was then sent to Kinabalu um, twice um, over the next couple of years. I went to Kinabalu and Sabah. I climbed the mountain and carried out microclimate studies there and looking into the cultivation of area section rhododendrons. And then I got the opportunity to go to Eriandjaya. That's the northern part of Papua New Guinea. It's a separate country. It's part of Indonesia. We were the first expedition in there since 1957, since the Harvard Peabody Expedition. And we worked very closely with the indigenous Danny tribesmen, most of whom had never seen someone with white skin. And it was around that time that I then started to get involved in expedition cruising. I worked for a company called Noble Caledonia that I still work with. And my first journey for them was a circumnavigation of Ireland. And then over the next 10 years, I did various expeditions in the Western Isles, 
I went to the Seychelles six times, including Aldabra. I travelled all through Indonesia and Malaysia, all through the South Pacific, and down into New Zealand and into South Africa. In fact, I think I did 25 cruises in total, 26 cruises for them. And then ah, life changed and I started to explore the deserts of North America, the Mojave Desert, the Sonoran Desert, the Chihuahuan Desert, and, and the Rocky Mountains. And, you know, these places were wonderful. You know, they, they touched my soul in new ways. The desert's a fantastic place. I saw Love more deserts. life and biodiversity in the desert than I ever saw in the rainforest. I mean, I, I, I even sailed catamarans and chased parrots and flamingos in the abacos, but that's another story. <laughs> That's Alistair, could you, could you come in here? I mean, I, I'm beginning to feel like I, I just haven't been anywhere. I, I've travelled a fair bit like yourself, but this is incredible, Dave. What do you make of this, Alistair? Oh, so that's fantastic. I mean, I always felt slightly lightweight in not having a skill or something or, a, a, you know, a, a technical skill that I could exercise in my travels. And I'm very envious of David having, a, you know, the botanical skills to have a, that purpose. Um, my purpose was curiosity, which seems a bit lightweight in comparison. But you, oh. you, have, a, you have a writing skill, Alistair. That's, 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 not giving yourself full, full credit for this. You've got a writing skill, you know. Well, I will. Thank you. <laughs> um, but sometimes it seems, a little, you know, as I say, a little bit, bit light on. But I'm, I'm very interested in David's um, reasons for, for why the Scots are such great travellers, which I think is absolutely true. But on the other side of it, I always know that when I come back, I think, why did I leave? You know, I, I, there's so much variety. There's so much variety in Scotland, in in within sort of two miles. In all these other countries, you have to go about five hundred miles to get the same sort of variety or some amount of variety. I always come back thinking this country is so beautiful. It's got so much richness uh, and and uh, variety in such a small area. Well, you know this. I'm going to ask Dave about that, about what he feels about you know coming back and now. But before I get to that bit, David fits on your list for the future? Oh, Frida, that's a good question. You know, I mean, especially since we've been curtailed over the last two or three years. You know I've always had a deep interest in Captain James Cook and his crew, many of whom were Scots, including gardeners and artists. And I think for that reason, I'd love to go to Alaska and sail along the coast and visit Vancouver Island. And I'd also like to go to the opposite end of the world, and go to the South Island in New Zealand. That's still in my in my sights. I've been to North Island, but I've never managed the South Island. Nearer to home, I'd love to go to Florence for a week, ten days, and study the wonder of Renaissance art. You know, and visit places like the Uffizi and the Gallery dell'Accademia, the home to Michelangelo's David and the Palazzo Pitti with all its Baroque wonders. And I'd need to have Verace's Life of the Artists in my pocket. I mean, to spend time like that in Florence under the watchful eye of the Cathedral of Santa Maria, which has got Brunicelli's dome on the top of it, you know, that would just be incredible. The Himalayas, Machu Picchu. Ah, I'm afraid now, Frida, they're nothing but dreams. You know, my hips will no stand up to all that climbing. Mm. But in balance, I've now, I was just counting it up the other day, I've now done over 110 islands and five oceans. <laughs> and I'll carry on bagging islands. Iceland's firmly on my sights for its geology and spring flowers and, you know, the cultural heritage, the sagas. I love working with indigenous people. Like and there, yep. and it, it would be fantastic to go and spend time with Aboriginal guides in the Northern Territories of Australia, 
with maybe a quick dash down to Shark Bay in Western Australia to see Hamlin Pool, where I could view the stromatolites. These are basically rocks that look like big cauliflowers, but they're actually alive. They've got blue-green algae inside them, and they're the oldest known form of life on Earth. Yosemite, that's on the list. You know, that would be a great place to go. But if I had to choose one place, I would want to go to Antarctica and God willing, mm. checkbook. I'll get there one of these days. Everything, time. I would, I just, everybody I've met says there's nothing like it. And I would like to experience the silence and the light of Antarctica. Has your travels changed your perspective? Fitjikaheim, David. Oh, Frida, jungles, deserts, mountains, islands. They've taught me contentment and a much deeper respect for the nation that is my home. The people I've met have reaffirmed my faith in humanity. It still amazes me how kind people are to you when you meet them, you know, you've never met before when you're traveling. I've also, when I've traveled, I've enjoyed a simpler life when I'm not bombarded with technology and information every day. And my travels also have given me a deep respect for the cool Scottish air that fills my lungs and the clean water that flows out of the tap. As Alistair said a few minutes ago, we're half a lucky to bide where we do. Scotland's enough a bunny here. There's nowhere like it on earth. It's home. My home. Okay, Alistair, has, has travels changed you, your perspective, do you think? Ah, uh, yes. Unfortunately, I think I forget the lessons. Um, <laughs> what always strikes me is the universality. You know, we're all the same people. You, you can go to any country in the world and it's just, the, it's just the same people you're meeting the whole time. Everyone is concerned about bringing up their family, having a job, putting food on the table. Everyone is basically kind. And I think so many people um, particularly when, when uh, uh, abroad, they see a stranger and they think, you know, this person is on their own. I must try and help them. And mm. uh, you know, the friendliness, the, the the hospitality is actually overwhelming, and usually greatest in the poorest countries that yeah, you go to. I, I would totally agree with that, Alistair. Definitely, definitely. Uh, and and when I come back to Scotland, I sometimes you know I th I think we are also a wonderfully warm and friendly race, and I I think we you know we also extend our hospitality out probably more to strangers than we do to our own our own folk, but we do it. I think one of the things that sticks out in my memory most of all is sitting in the high mountains of New Guinea, speaking English, not speaking Indonesian, definitely not speaking Dani. Nobody, there was not one of us in the group of about 10 of us that could communicate directly with each other. We had to go through interpreters and yet we were all sitting underneath the stars, absolutely mesmerized by this spectacular show where there's no borrowed light with a yeah. common spirit between us. Um, yeah, there's some pretty yeah. special things that happen like that. Well, I remember in, in being in, in Bolivia and I was in a really poor part of the, the capital there, uh, La Paz. I saw some oranges on the, on the, on the, lying on the road and I picked one up and realised it was actually rotten. So I just put it back down on the road and walked on. And the next minute, this little peasant woman, an old woman who sits for an entire day over a little pile of fresh oranges trying to, trying to sell them, came rushing up to me and pressed two oranges into my hand saying, take them, take them because she thought I was hungry, and I was just so, so yeah. humbled by that generosity. I, th I think that's, that sums it up, Alistair. 
it's that humanity that you yeah. encounter. Yeah. And we must be very careful that we do not lose it in our yeah. own society. Yeah. Oh, you know, this. you do, I, I could sit, I think, I speak for Richie uh, mm. as well. We could sit and listen to your traveller's tales for a long time yet. You know, it's just been fantastic having you both, both together talking about this. I've got to ask Alistair one thing. Yeah. And it's mad. Do you take tea bags with you, Alistair? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I do. I Let me finish. Let me finish. I usually take about six with me, and I usually end up coming home with five of them. <laughs> yeah, I, would I don't never, know why. I would never leave anywhere I was going in the world. I would never <laughs> go anywhere without a handful of tea bags. I because... It's there's nothing. I mean, tea's tea around the world, but there's nothing like British tea. Oh, no, no, no. To, to me, it's oat, me, oat flakes. I take oat flakes porridge. I have porridge oats every day, every day. That's why I, I take with me. <laughs> oh, on that note, on that note, and just 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 for for information, I I take tea bags with me as well. I've got the tea bags in my suitcase. Dave, thank you. As I wish you take us on different kinds of journeys, and Alistair, fit a treat, fit stories. Please, as I said before, do not lose contact with us. No. And that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you've enjoyed the journey with us. A big thank you to Gordon Hay for taking us on his journey, and to our studio guest, travel writer and photographer, Alistair Scott. Alistair, as I said, please stay with us. I hope you've enjoyed being with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. I will certainly keep in touch, Shafrida. And join us again. Okay, we'll leave you with this track for that new album for the, the band Ascent. And it's a, it is a stunning album. Good tunes and lovely arrangements. Look out for it. It's called Where From Here. Featuring Ennis White, Graham McKenzie and David Shedding. The track is called Alive and Astley. And forever your plans, may you never go off the glide. Just enjoy the journey, travel and hope. And forever your plan, keep wheel and keep warm. Join us again for Richie Werner, Dave Mitchell, Alistair Scott and myself, Frida Morrison. Thank you for joining us. Bye the news.